This episode is made possible by you. HRN is a member-supported nonprofit, and our coverage is only possible thanks to your generous support. Learn more later in the show, or just go straight ahead to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This is Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for 10 years. After all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the world of beer, food, cider, and more. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love from my show by selecting Beer Sessions in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys, I'm Jimmy Carboni, and uh, today is Tuesday, July 16th, 2019. We've got some great guests on the show. We've been talking about local malt, slow grains all week. Tomorrow is our New York City Brewer's Choice ninth annual event in Williamsburg. You can check it out at nycbrewerschoice.com if you're listening live. But the reason that it's an important event is that it's evolved, you know, 10 years ago, it was like people were just opening craft breweries and, and people were just opening craft beer bars, good beer sealed bars. And now th- things have come a long way. And back in 2014, when we did the New York City Brewer's Choice, it was the first time we worked with Grow NYC Regional Grains and uh, Valley Malt out of Massachusetts, which was the only malt facility in the Northeast uh, for like many, many years. And uh, things have come so far so fast. And our guests today, we're going to talk about that story. Um, everyone, please introduce yourselves. Start with the guys uh, from Subversive. Yeah, I'm, I'm Max, Max Ocean. I am one of the founders and uh, owners of Subversive Malting and Brewing in the Hudson Valley. Great. Sane Coffee, uh, head one of the, the brewer from Subversive Malting and Brewing, one of the founders. Great. Hey, I'm Jeff Lyons from Kagan Lantern. So, Jeff, you've been around with us for a while. I mean, part of the story of, of local malt and the change in craft beer scene in New York City uh, was definitely the, the influence of all the homebrew clubs and BGCP classes and homebrew events. Um, when did you first s- start seeing people work with local malts uh, as a homebrewer and then as a, as a pro brewer? Um, so I, I feel like I was pretty early on just because I was uh, sort of in the presence of Chris Prout. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Brooklyn Bruisers Homebrew Club up in Greenpoint. And, you know, I remember him him loading up, drive, driving his pickup truck uh, to Andrea at Valley Malt and loading the back of it up, bringing it all back, and then brewing with it for months himself and trying to get the Bruisers to, to brew with it at home. Uh, and then once he transitioned into opening up Greenpoint Beer and Ale as the head brewer there, uh, we just had a standing order, so anytime Andrea had a pallet worth of of malt, she'd ship it out to us. So I feel like he was really pushing really early on and and really supportive of the whole concept. So I feel pretty lucky to have been around, tasted a bunch of the beers really early on, and 
and sort of watch the evolution from from that into sort of being a little bit blessed about the number of people that we're able to work with now. Yeah, and I, I remember that in 2014, it was it, it was an amazing thing that really established great brewers like Jeff O'Neill, who then was at Peekskill, and Phil Leinhardt, who was at Omegang. They, at, for this event we did in 2014, they were taking the chance and, and working with the local malts, which a lot of them hadn't worked with on a larger scale. And they had complaints about it. You know, they, they, it didn't quite always work with the machinery, or there were a lot of issues that came up. But I, I, I thought then, and I still do, that whenever brewers work with local malts, that their beers are better than the, than otherwise. So you guys, subversive. You have a great story. So you're like this new generation where you started. Tell us how you guys got started. I want to hear the story. You won a competition uh, t- to fund your business. Yeah, we won twenty five grand our, our senior year of college. But uh, I mean, our, our idea we wouldn't have even come up with. I so you did. Like. You did, You won this prize. I'm going to cut. You know, you didn't decide to make cookies or some other vegan coconut snack like. Some people have really stupid business models that win these competitions. But you guys actually did something real. Yeah, I, a lot of it was we were both very interested in in beer, in brewing. I, we both started home brewing in college. I, I moved out to Oregon. I took a year off and really steeped myself in the craft beer scene there and got very, very excited about beer and about flavor and about sort of the whole scene. And then coming back to college we really doubled down on home brewing and getting really interested in in beer and then also the intersection with local agriculture and we just yeah we realized that where the industry was at that point was it was still in this period where it was really very fledgling i mean i think there were three malt houses in new york at that point uh plus valley was malting new york grain for new york brewers who are really the pioneers of the east coast craft malting yeah i mean i I would say valley malt and uh and farmhouse malt and and farmhouse brewery marty matrazo in owego new york were kind of our two early inspirational models along with evan watson at plan b a little bit um because they had kind of paved the way and, and showed that this path would be possible for us um, and, and also Valley Malt, I mean, what they push with experimental malts was hugely inspirational to us because we didn't want to get into this and just make base malts. We wanted to, to kind of use that, the malt house, as a creative outlet to, you know, work with heritage grains and interesting varietals and processes as well. So what, what was your business pitch that you won the competition for? You're, you're called subversive malting and brewing. So, so how did you tie in the malting? It was a combination malt house brewery that we'd pitched. And the idea was to wholesale malt for other brewers and then to produce enough malt for ourselves to run a small brewery um, and, and really focus on malt as a an extra sort of process step in the brewery to really explore flavor and yeah, and dive a little bit deeper into the brewing experience. Yeah, I mean, we have this this little pub right in, in Catskill, New York now that we opened about, about six months ago. And uh, it's a wonderful opportunity as maltsters to be able to serve that glass of beer directly to the drinker and start that conversation. Everybody likes beer, right? But But most beer drinkers don't really know what malt is. So by having that kind of sexy end product, so to speak, we're able to start that conversation about the supply chain with our customers and and hopefully, you know, add a little bit of value to what people like Jeff do, what people like Jason at Strong Rope do, right, who who maybe aren't maltsters themselves. Jeff, I'm, I'm impressed with these guys because what's different in 2014, we literally had a corral 
groups like Grow NYC Green Markets and and you know the, the Brewers Guild and New York City Beer Week and try to get everybody on board. Hey, let's try to get 20 brewers to make a batch of beer with with local malt. And this year we put out the word and guys like Evan Watson at Plan B says, Jimmy, I've only been using local malt. And six years ago, I would drive six hours to get to Marty Matrazo's to get get the malt. And now you guys, out of the blue, subversive, I, we, I'd seen you on some social media. I know that you guys supported Common Roots Brewing after they had uh, their fire. But you guys were like, no, man, this is what we do. So, I mean, just in five years, it's come so far, Jeff. I don't know what your take on it is, because I think this is cool. I mean, it's like we're talking about local ingredients in beer. I mean, what's more, what's more important than malt? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's the soul of beer, right? Uh, no, it's fantastic. The, you know, it's it. We we traditionally have used so many ingredients that come from overseas and from so far away. It becomes sort of intangible and just so far removed. And you're just taking this product, and you don't you lose touch with that whole the whole supply chain. Um, and you know, not only are these great guys who are incredibly fun to have some beers with and and let loose, but like. To be able to do that with somebody that, you know, is potentially supplying you with an ingredient that you're then honing your craft and, and making the thing that you love to make with something that they love to make. It's just it's really nice to have that direct relationship and that that direct line of communication, which I think is a huge, huge part of what makes community, which is a huge part of what makes craft beer, craft beer to me. But Max and Zane, so you guys, you, you're, you're malting, but you're really just malting just enough that you can brew yeah yeah i mean there was about 10 months we were selling uh malts you know we're the smallest malt house out of i think there's 12 or 13 of us in the state now we're the smallest currently in new york though we're we're making some steps to scale up in the next few months um so the plan was always to primarily focus on supplying ourselves we thought we'd be able to supply a few accounts uh in the meantime but but pretty quickly when we opened the brewery which is just seven months ago now uh we, we realized that it made a lot more sense to to focus on supplying ourselves and and the, the thing that we're really trying to do that's different is we're not just trying to do our own base malts we're trying to do every step of, of processing in-house whether it's you know, kilning to a slightly higher kiln malt, or whether it's roasting grain and malt to uh, to make a dark beer. I know that, um, you know, like Hudson Valley Malt in Germantown, I've been I've been there to Dennis Nezel, um, and I even know for for distillers like Copper Sea and their New Paltz, they're using these like traditional kind of floor floor kilning setups. But you're not doing that. Tell us what you did and why you just why you decided to malt the way you do, how you're malting. Give us that story because that's very interesting. So we. In planning the whole business, we had originally looked at floor malting um, partially because of how sexy it was and how gorgeous it, it looks to have a big piece of malt on the floor and, and to turn it and, and all those things. And, but, and it's kind of the traditional method, right? And it's I mean, the traditional method. So it's like you're raking it and shoveling it. Exactly. Um, but as we, And there's heat underneath, right? Is that the... How does it work? No, it's, you're on a, it's a floor, and how, how does it get heated? Uh, so when it's on the floor, it actually doesn't really get heated. It, it generally, that's just when it's germinating. So you let the you let the grain germinate for a couple of days after you steep it. Yeah, you actually want that floor to be a, a cold thermal mass to, to make the grain not get too hot. Right? Yeah, so it needs, to, it needs to start growing really, really slowly. So you can control basically how much they modify in, uh, in relationship to each other so they don't, it doesn't get out of whack. Um, 
but it takes a lot of floor space to do floor malting, obviously. Um, so in our business plan, because of our, our space requirements, we decided to go towards um, a pneumatic system. So it's a big stainless steel vessel that has a false bottom, sort of looks like a mash tun actually. It's it's really big. So we installed the false, it was a used uh, soda syrup tank we bought off eBay for like 400 bucks. Got a friend to weld a floor <laughs> in it and uh, it's basically perforated stainless sheets that we you know screw on onto the you know, frame, um, and that allows us to push air underneath yeah. that grain bed, basically. So we can have a grain bed that's like three or four times as thick as, as Dennis at Hudson Valley would be able to have floor malting. So it's a much smaller space requirement. And we have, you know, we have temp probes that control all the air flows and how humid it gets. So we can dial in very exactly what kind of malt that we want. And then in that vessel, we hop in and we turn it. So doesn't quite look like traditional floor malt rakes. You know, we hop in with a shovel and, and turn it and give it a really good mix. And then once it's done germinating, basically once the acrospire has reached the point where all the starch has, has really been unlocked, um, we just kiln it in that same vessel. And it's, it's about um, baking temperatures generally. So, and it's really analogous to baking. So you could you can bake it, kiln it in in the malt um, at low temperatures, and that's where you get uh, a pilsner malt. And then you can step it up, you know, twenty. What, what are the degrees. temperatures that you try to hit? So, you know, for a a pils malt, you're going, you know, somewhere around one fifty to one eighty, and that's sort of how you dial in your. The, you know the SRM that you brew with, um, and then pale uh, pale malts, twenty thirty degrees above that, and then we have the capacity to go up to about um, like a Vienna, and that's, you know, we hit that two fifty two seventy, and, and those you get, are, you get some really awesome you know color and flavor development yeah. once you once you get up to those temperatures. It's yeah. same base grain creates a completely different product. This is so. cool, Jeff, isn't it? Have Have you ever been ever ever malted? Uh, grain before? I haven't. Yeah, I want to come up and, yeah, do, it come out and do it. It's pretty us. fun. Yeah, so yeah. you brought one of the beers that you're going to be serving at New York City Brewers Choice tomorrow. Indeed. Um, just tell us about this, what the beer is, but in particularly the malt that that's in it, and how you made that malt. So, if you made it. Uh, so yeah, this is called drinking beer. We made we we make 100 percent of the malts in in all our beers. Uh, so drinking beer, D R I N K E N B I E R. Right. It's a little bit of a, a funny. Fun name. I mean, a lot, a lot of people get confused when they come in if they haven't been in before and their friend has been in and they order it's a like drinking beer. Drunk in German, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of just out of the gate was our, uh, you know, we didn't have any dialed in recipes when we opened because uh, we hadn't worked with our own malts a whole lot before. And we had just just kind of gotten the, the new heater that allowed us to push our kiln temperatures temperatures up to those Vienna temperatures like a month before we started brewing commercially right so so we had this new product that brought a lot more flavor to our beers that we hadn't worked with before and uh, we, we put some of it in a lager just a little bit and it you know gave some more depth malt depth to to the beer um, and out of the gate it was just a hit and it's been about a quarter of the volume we've sold out of our tap room since we opened yeah so it's a Keller lager that has a little bit of a lot of pills a little bit of pale malt and a, and a touch of Vienna just to give it some of that that nice dark you know some of those nice nice tasty crackery 
you know, bready things. Happening. Yeah, a little more malt sweetness than like a pills would have mm-hmm. or anything like that. But yeah, Jeff. Uh, <clears throat> I just have to call you out that it's awfully brilliant for a Keller beer. <laughs> <laughs> I like. In, I mean, in a good way. In a very, very. I, very I like way. like malt forward beers. It's not like, and you guys know what I mean. But when I say malt forward or malt friendly, what's a good way to describe this flavor profile, Jeff? Because it's not like American beers. It's not a hop forward beer. No, I think I think you're on the right track. I think if you're talking about a lager, I think this is very much falls into a, a malt forward, you know, beer for a for a lager. I think those those Vienna those Vienna notes sort of put, yeah I mean do, do you guys place. do you say if you just if you say Vienna lager I know I would expect this but do you feel like you have to explain the flavor profile to anyone or how would you explain the pro- flavor profile other than just saying it's a Vienna lager I mean it's a tu- it's a tough thing yeah we don't we don't want to box ourselves in and call anything a Vienna lager necessarily right because we're we're working with New York ingredients we're not working with something from Vienna I mean aside for, aside from some yeasts um, so I mean I guess we're not really you know when Zane Zane writes recipes but but we both kind of work on where we want a beer to go together and we never are driven by a style definition um we're always driven just by trying to make good beer and then we kind of after we have a product try to define it in a way that our customers are going to be able to understand right because customers our customers do tend to think of beers within style categories to some extent um for us coming up with the beers we usually start off with an i a style as an idea and then build take all the take the ingredients that we have and sort of build around that concept um, so that's so then, yeah. Because I mean, our ingredients are our ingredients. It's the low. It's it tastes like it's ing- else. ingredient driven beer. Very yeah. much. Our so. goal was to make a tasty lager. It wasn't to make a Vienna lager whatsoever, right? But uh, it might be somewhat representative of one. I, I think that's one of the most exciting parts about dealing with with New York ingredients is that you're not just trying to mimic something. You're not able to make the same IPA that everybody else is making or, or you know whatever the the example is but it's to me the excitement is that you you get uniqueness out of all these ingredients and almost the smaller that you are you know like like these guys like you're creating something that no other maltster in the state even if they were taking the same grain in is going to make just because their system's different in the same way that different breweries can use the same ingredients and create different beers um you know these these ingredients are different. It creates and pushes you into different areas, and I, you know, I really think that we're, if if we are even to the point of scratching the surface, we are so at the beginning of this, and and I'm I find it really exciting to find out where we might be in two or five or ten years time, as far as utilizing these ingredients and letting them take us where they take us, and and kind of creating our own unique styles just because the ingredients take us there. Yeah, hundred percent. It's like you got a laboratory there. It's like I, I got a smoker that I smoke meat in. I want to get a, I want to get one of these. What, tell us again the name of this malt machine. Uh, it's a pneumatic system. Pneumatic I mean, actually, for, for a little historical context, uh, I think is it called a Galand box technically, or I forget. It was some French guy. I forget his name. I'd have to look that up. But the Saladin box so, was what came after, yeah. and uh, basically, this was like the way we malt was like the first advent away from floor malting right and it was attempt in industrial areas to use square footage 
as you know, yeah, it got more, more and more expensive to use yeah. it more efficiently. And so th this guy figured out this way, but he kind of gave it up after a few years because it was so much work to turn the malt physically once that grain bed gets, you know, <laughs> 30 inches thick or whatever compared to the, you know, six inch, six, eight inches on the floor it might be. Uh, and, his, and it soaks up a ton of water, so it gets even heavier. So if you put in, you know, a thousand pounds, it'll get it'll be almost 2,000 pounds of stuff that you have to turn once it soaks the water up. So, so he gave it up after a couple of years, but his pupil, uh, Saladin, thought I could mechanize this, and he put mechanical screws that went back and forth through the grain bed, and that was probably the biggest uh, industrial achievement we've ever seen in malting. You know, it's still kind of how most industrial how malt houses work. How many years ago was this? Uh, it was late 1800s at some point, yeah. yeah. Hey, where did you find your knowledge about malt i mean did you read like uh, john mallet we know has the malt book uh so there's a great book it's uh dennis e briggs um and which is one of the the big seminal texts that everyone um reads if you're if you're serious about malting but it's all aimed at very large industrial malt houses so christian and andrea are actually really from valley malt. from valley malt in helping us create and troubleshoot some of the things um, but then um, Hartwick College put on an uh, advanced craft malting course, technical course, um, uh, and that was uh, fully, that was where you, we actually got a lot of sort of hands-on Hardwick's sort of cool. Like this, there's this guy Aaron. Is he Aaron still McLeod? There? Well, he was so Aaron who, worked in like in Canada and for these big malts. Yeah, I mean, really, he was like one of the experts on malts. Hundred percent. I mean, America, he, he right? worked sending millions and millions of pounds of, of malt from the Canada from Canada over to the Chinese government, and the Chinese government needed like this special like lab procedure done and everything. So it was. It was a real, like, total change of course for him to start working with yeah. guys like Christian and Andrea and eventually us. But we cannot overstate uh, the importance to the industry, not just in New York, but nationwide that Aaron has played. I mean, his lab is, is the best and most accessible in the country. He's so accessible via phone. It's like having a million-dollar lab that, that we didn't pay for, basically. Um, 1.5. And, I mean, all 100 craft maltsters pretty much nationwide are using his services and stuff. Is this a little, little college in, in the New York yeah. State? Yep. yep. Hartwood wow. College yep. in Oneonta. New York's right? got yep. some cool stuff. Jeff, let's just go back. So, you know, a few years ago, you were, you were getting some malts through Chris Prout, and you guys were homebrewing with it. But it, it's come a long way. But but still, how, how are you able to get local malts? Um, do you get it at Keg and Lantern, or are the homebrewers getting it? Or is it still still limited supply? <laughs> Um, yeah, there's so there's more of them and there's more volume. Um, so I think there's there's a pretty decent number of breweries in New York State who are who are using New York malt at least sometimes, if not predominantly. But I, I think that it's still very difficult. I think those supply chains um, are not really set up yet for for them to service directly to a to a homebrew shop, which is how almost all homebrewers have to get their ingredients. So. Yeah, we had we had Chris with the Bruisers. Um, Chris has sort of moved on from that. Um, I I still go to the Bruisers, so I, I end up getting a lot of malt from from Ted Hawley, who's been on the show from New York Craft Malt, and um, so I I buy that to use at the brewery, and then I use that at home quite often, 
And then uh, sometimes we'll put together projects, or if one of the bruisers wants to use some local malt, they can. And also, like, can Jason has strong rope. Sometimes homebrewers will get malt yeah, from him. J- Jason's awesome about that. And even I go and, and take little bits of specialty malt to sort of diversify what's available to me. Yeah, Jason yeah. was one of our original customers when we were selling malt. And still to this day, every once in a while, we'll see somebody like tag us on Instagram or something. You know, I haven't sold him malt in like almost a year, <laughs> probably, but uh, he's still doling it out there for mm-hmm. homebrewers to. And let's give a quick shout out. So just in five, six years, again, before, not too long ago, it was just Valley Malt in Massachusetts. Who, who are some of the, you know, the really good maltsters out there in New York State that you guys would recommend? When I'm going to say Hudson Valley Malt. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really cool. We're, you know, 10, 15 minutes from from Dennis and, uh, you know, kind of had both kind of come up with ideas around the same time, I think. But he opened a couple years before us um, and just as a malt house, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's been awesome to see him really hit his stride. And I mean, it's like all all the great brewers in the Hudson Valley are buying malt from him. And we couldn't be happier about that. You know, Hudson Valley, uh, Industrial Arts. Make some really nice some malt New York too. craft malt. Yeah, yeah, New York craft malt. Yeah. And what about for you, Jeff? Well, you know, I, I'm a little bit limited in the scope, but I, I mean, Ted's my guy. He's he's fantastic. I cherish him, you know, as a, as a friendship. But I think he's he's making really great malt too. So I'm I'm really happy to do that. But I, you know, I really like Noel. I I do think that there's some some value to uh, having somebody as big on the block as 1886. Um, and you know, there's a sort of runs a gamut it's nice it's nice to have some diversity and some of size and of flavor going on and and specifically with ted i'm pretty sure he's the only guy wholesaling at least on any significant volume a lot of specialty malts to new york brewers right from my perspective yes i i could be wrong and i could be overlooking some but yes i i feel that way let's um talk about the next beer you guys brought uh from subversive what's this beer so this is called body uh, it's a or body double IPA. Yep, yep. hazy hazy IPA. A um, lot of Tahoma. You guys are a good of, team. I like a lot guys. of Michigan copper. Jackson and Zane. <laughs> um, yeah, just a sort of big going going a little thicker, going a little hazy. One of, yeah, one, you know, so so when we talk about making hoppy beers in New York, right? We're pretty limited as far as varieties go, and and a lot of those sexy varieties that you probably see on the beer boards and all the cool bars, right? <laughs> Citra, Simcoe, Mosaic, uh, those are proprietary and, and New York growers aren't able to grow them at, at least at this point in New York. Um, but we are starting to see, you know, six, seven years in, people are finding out what works with the terroir in New York state and, uh, and Great Lakes hops, which is a breeder out of Michigan, um, has developed some proprietary hops that they're licensing pretty inexpensively to New York growers. Michigan Copper, which is one of the, the hops that's dominant uh, in the dry hop in this beer, being one of those. Uh, and I think that's really just the, the tip of the iceberg of what we'll probably see on the hop cultivation side long term. Um, mm-hmm. I think we'll find varieties that are aromatic and grow well in New York uh, as long as uh, as long as people, you know, keep keep buying and supporting it. That supply chain is going to really figure it out. Jeff, outside, you were talking. You guys were talking about a, a hop you called Mystery Hop. So, uh, so you know, our our local go-to. If you want to drink uh, beer with local ingredients, or you want to try to learn about local ingredients uh, in a finished form, you know, the sort of local guru is Jason uh, Sailor at Strong Up. He's been, you know, homebrewing with it before he opened, and then you know, 
since Strong Rope opened, he's he's been pretty much 100% New York ingredients. So we used to be able to go out there, and he used to put it right on the menu, and you just drink your way through and just try to figure out what's what and what's creating what flavors. And there was a point a couple of years back where, you know, so many of the beers that you were just like, wow, this is sort of knocking my socks off. What's going on with this? And it would, the answer was almost invariably like, oh, that's the mystery hop. And we knew where it came from, but the person who grew it, um, the it's, it's Whipple Brothers. Um, they they kind of lost track a little bit. <laughs> Maybe their paperwork wasn't so, so tidy. And they couldn't remember what they put in that row uh, or in that field. So they knew they had something really good, but they didn't know exactly what it was. And then... Uh, so that that that's sort of the origin of that. You still story. call it mystery hop? Well, yeah, I think he came to to realize that he was pretty certain it was Columbus. So he's he puts it out now as CTZ. So yeah, a little bit later we can crack a beer. I made a saison that I'll be pouring tomorrow night at at your event that uh, at the Brewer's Choice that that features that hop. Great. Let's we're gonna take a short break. Uh, engineer is gonna cut to a little uh, message, and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by you. This is HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and I want to personally acknowledge you. Our entire 10-year history of groundbreaking food and beverage audio journalism has only been possible because of listeners like you. You usually hear from our incredibly supportive network of business partners during these show breaks, but this week, we're taking a moment to thank the thousands of individual donors who've been part of our family since the very start. You listen to HRN because you care not only about what's on your plate and in your glass, but how it got there and the stories of all the people, plants, and animals that contribute to the food supply chain. So please, this week, take a moment to show us what independent food radio means to you and become a member of HRN. Help us deliver another 10 years of storytelling that will shape the world during a critical time for politics, innovation, food ethics, and the planet. With your help, we can change the world and our food system one soundbite at a time. There's no food radio without you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate before July 31st to do your part to ensure a bright future for your favorite food podcasts. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. From all of us at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you for your vision and generosity from the bottom of our hearts. Commercial. Uh Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Check it out, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Um, it is the membership drive this summer. Check it out. It's really important. Uh, there's over 30 shows. It's a nonprofit. You can become a member and uh, really keep this thing going for another 10 years. We're in our 10th year now. There's the Heritage Radio Network Hall of Fame. A lot of our top guests are on there. Um, just keep checking it out, heritageradionetwork.org. So, guys, thanks for joining me. We've got Subversive Malting and Brewing and uh, Jeff from Kagan Lane. All right. So we're drinking beer and talking about malts. So, um, Jeff, what did you bring? Uh, so I brought a couple of things. I think uh, the conversation earlier sort of, I think you were skirting the issue of, um, like, talking about New York Hop Guild and Chris Holden and mm-hmm. and talking about some of that stuff. So we actually made a beer, I don't know, about a month ago or so, um, giving up my timeline on my lagers. Um, <laughs> but we did a we did a collab. So Chris, Chris Holden's sort of the front-facing, um, sort of the face and the, 
the sales side of, of the New York Hop Guild. Uh, he's been on the show too, right? Yes. Um, really good dude. And uh, so he, he, he talks to me a lot about different hops and we go back and forth and he was like, Hey, I got my hands on, on this hop called Petit Blanc. And he had enough that we could, you know, rub a little bit of it and smell it and talk about it. And then, uh, so he's like, Hey, you know, why don't I come down? Um, I'll bring the hop and we can make a beer. And then I think he had had the same conversation with Browns in Troy, New York. And then he ended up only with like one bag of the hop being sent from Germany. So he was like, Hey, why don't we just all do it together? So the guys, uh, a couple of the guys from Browns came down, made a beer with us. So we made a Bohemian lager with a hop from Germany called Petit Blanc. So that's, cool. that's right. Let's taste it. Cool. And yeah, just so, just so people understand what Chris is kind of doing, New York Hop Guild, you know, Chris with Crooked Creek, he's been at it for a while. He was definitely one of the early guys on the hop side in New York, but now he's kind of working to be this supply chain solution for people. And he's focusing on, you know, New York hops from multiple other growers other than himself. Uh, you know, he, it's not just him involved with, with the guild, uh, but he's also focusing on bringing some really interesting varietals. You know, we're not buying any of them cause we're hundred percent New York, but he's bringing some really interesting European varietals stateside and distributing those to New York brewers as well. Well, this tastes like a Bohemian Pills, Jeff. You always hit it. You, you, I hope so. You, you are. <laughs> I think one thing about the, the focus on local malts this week is that I'm so interested in lagers and Hellas and, and Keller beers more so than ever. And we've done quite a few shows in the last six, seven months about it. Uh, I love your enthusiasm for it, Jeff. Um, um, absolutely. So it, you said it take you made this a month ago. Is is time an issue when you make lagers? Uh, for a lot of people, it is. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> super clean. For yeah, it's it's a tasty, tasty beer. Uh, I I really like. Uh, I mean, this is all relative, right? So I'm not talking about like the amount of esters that you might find in a saison that we might pour here in a minute. But you know, relative to the style, I I like a yeast expression in a lager. I I like a little bit of ester and i i like that used to be present and i've sort of come come to think about even lagers as sort of a farmhouse style or you know that rustic style um or, or approaching it in that way and i think when you do you can turn things around pretty quickly and they're still pretty clean hopefully no diacetyl no sulfur none of these off flavors no dms or anything like that but you just get a freshness that you don't get if you if you just put it in the cooler and forget about it for six or eight or 12 weeks or you know we had we had cbc in denver and beer stout which just made incredible beers but i mean they talk about like 200 and some odd days sometimes for some of those beers and it's <laughs> That's wild. it just blows your mind how long they're lagering it but i just you know if we can if we can get a beer there in two weeks i'm happy to do it yeah Zane, what about what's your take on time really depends on the beer i think it's yeah i think it's very very beer dependent and it goes back to what jeff was saying is like if you want if you want to have a little bit of the vibrancy kind of thing yeah a little fresher coming getting it out of the tank is is nice but some you know some of the beers too you want to have sit and lager for a long time and and just really have everything work through some of those gawky moments that the beer has in that in that sort of but we're pretty new to brewing lagers too. I mean, as home brewers, we didn't have um, we didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have the infrastructure to do it, so we're really kind of figuring it out right now. And then, for, and let's go back to malt. So, what grains are being grown in, in New York, in particular, that 
are seem to be best suited for for you guys to malt for making beer. I know that even five six years ago there was talk about odd grains like emmers and rye because because th- they they were seen to grow better for farmers. But what what's becoming the the, the you know the best grain for malts in New York? Yeah, so we I mean barley is the short answer for now. I, yeah, barley for beer barley is the best beer. grain. That's just that's just how it yeah. is. It's that simple. Um, and there's some there's some really really good barley being grown in New York, and a lot of it has you know a lot of it has to do with the farmers taking barley malt and malting bar- like very very seriously. A lot of it has to do with Aaron McLeod at Hartwick. One of the one of the big challenges we see though is that. Farmers, for the most part, have to buy this seed from seed companies, right? And seed companies are, for the most part, making varieties available based on, like, recommendations from places like Cornell. So they'll make a recommendation, have a seed available for a couple of years. Farmers will put a lot of resources in into how learning how to grow that variety, and then sometimes that variety will disappear because, you know, the seed company sells seeds to a variety of industries, and just from you know, a simple business standpoint, selling that seed varietal wasn't uh, profitable enough for them. So we're kind of getting through those issues, I think. But I think in the first six, seven years, those have been some pretty big issues for a lot of growers. Um, We're working with a variety right now. I mean, we we malted one variety for about 18 months, Newdale. It's a a spring two-row variety. We love how it malts, but uh, it's very difficult to grow in New York. I mean, this is what Every the, the guys at Maine Malt House grow almost exclusively Newdale, right? They were shipping this barley up to Canada before they started malting it themselves. So it grows great a little north of here. But uh, with the humidity and, and heat we get in New York, it's a little bit more difficult. But we're currently, we've, we've switched, we're malting these test plots that our farmer grew for Cornell Cooperative Extension. And uh, and Violetta is really performing great in the malt house. Zane, yeah, Zane will tell you a little nice. bit more about super why. Nice. Um, and what's really great about that variety is that, that our farmer will be able to, to save seed and not have to worry about going back to that seed company for that variety. Yeah. Shout out to Rachel from West Wind Ag. Yeah, Rachel for- uh, McDermott now. Um, she, uh, she was in New York City as, in finance for a while and went back to the family farm, and she's kind of helping shepherd them to the next generation. So you know, with, West, is that also Westwood Orchards, too? Uh, no, no, it's not. Else. That's something else, yeah. yeah. They're in, they're in Scaticoke, so you know, a little, little northwest of Albany. Um, they, they've grown feed grain for, for the dairy industry in New York for a long time, but d- dairy is currently tanking in New York. So, so she really was So they had been they had been growing grain yeah they had a lot yeah, they had the yes. biggest you know grain bins east of syracuse in new york state if i'm not mistaken. so they have a, they have experience growing and high the quality grain already yeah which is super important and one of the things that for smaller farmers is basically impossible to grow high quality malting barley because the infrastructure isn't there and even if you can grow it you can't store it properly right one of the big things we've seen in the supply chain for for, for malt is is maltsters can't afford large grain bins and they're, they're trying to basically buy relatively small amounts of grain at a time right add value to that grain and then sell it to a brewer and then use that profit to buy more grain so uh, the the farmer at this point anyway really needs to be able to store that grain under proper conditions it needs to maintain its germinative ability for you know 12 to 18 months and there you know that's a lot of risk that the farmer has to put up with about a year ago, there was a Facebook post from a farmer I knew. He said, you know, my, my friend has a, he had an order of red fife, you know, wheat. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was destined for a bakery, but the bake, the bakery d- decided to not take it. And he started asking brewers, 
you know, if, if what to do with it. And I, I contacted Andrew at Valley Malt. Yeah. And the first question was, you know, what's the analytics on it? So tell us that process. If someone just grew grain, they, they grew it for bread, but now they want to sell it for, for brewers. You know, what's where Aaron Miles comes in, right? Yeah. I mean, it's why he's so critical. We can't yeah. just take it from a farmer just because they say it's a nice product. We need to know it's going to yeah. work in the malt house. And that's that Aaron McLeod is... Key. But is that a job for the farmer? Like, should farmers know that, that there are certain things they should be analyzing for? Yeah, I mean, a, a farmer should not try it. to sell their grain to a maltster without sending it to yeah. Aaron or another lab, basically. And, yeah, and, and talk to Aaron before you plant anything to know what your specs are. And, you know, because there's a whole interaction between, um, like, nitrogen application and protein on and all these things. And if you don't know what spec you're trying to hit, you're just sort of shooting. Yeah, you could throw a bunch of nitrogen on, get an insane yield, but you had a huge protein spike and all of a sudden the maltster is only interested in it for maybe specialty malts that are 1% of what they produce, right? Because the brewer can't. So for for like your base balance, what what are the general qualities you're looking for? I mean, primarily barley, but like there are certain, you can tell me some of the analytics or the chemistry of it. Yeah, so we're looking for... uh, well, the the first big go. Well, Jeff, can I have is, more of your Bohemian pills, please? Mm, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, actually. Well. See, we're talking around. malt, but we're drinking lager. Isn't mm-hmm. that the same thing? Yeah. Before you get going, that I looked it up and we brewed it three weeks ago yesterday. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, Zane. So chemistry, or but yeah. So um, the first no go is is having a lot of dawn in the fields um, in the in the barley. This is D-O-N. It's an acronym, and it's an acronym every maltster nationwide probably uh, yeah, has nightmares about. So what's yeah. D-O-N? It's a mycotoxin, basically. So it, it, it downstream causes gushing in beer and all this really nasty stuff that the brewers don't ever really have to deal with now because it's on the sort of the maltster to reject barley with, with high levels of Dawn. Um, and, and New York being as humid as it is is particularly susceptible to this issue. And especially with how much corn we grow, because it, it sort of flourishes in that So, in that it, you know, it can jump from a field of corn to a field of barley if they're close together and the wind catches just right kind of a thing. And then, yeah, for protein. Darn that talking, corn. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, 10, somewhere like 11 to 13 kind of percent. Like, everything's a little bit of, little flexible, but... You know, 14, 15% protein, it starts to, you can't really do anything with. Um, and Jeff, how, how do you, how do you, you know, you, you get malt, you're making great beer. I mean, do you just see analytics like on, on, on a malt spec sheet, or do you ever have to get a little more involved and curious about it? No, I think as long as you're not actually seeing problems in the, the, end beer, um, then I, I think we just put a lot of trust in these guys. And you see analytic sheets, and they mean different things to different people. And Yeah, very true. Some people understand what all of it means. Some people understand what none of it or some of it means. And I, you know, I, just, I just think depending on how you brew and what you're looking for, you're, you're either focused in on one or two of the pieces of the analytics or some or none I, or all I mean, of it. I mean, the big important varied. thing, right, and, and this is kind of what Aaron pushes, is, is don't think of it as a replacement, right? Um, and I think as long as brewers are starting with that as their intention, they can make a good product, right? You have to think of this as a dynamic agricultural product, as a winemaker yeah. would with grapes, say. It's, you know, 
from a different same variety from a different field the kernel plump plumpness might be a little bit different and you have to set that mill gap a little bit differently to get yeah. good extract um I, I really like to just kind of jump in initially and then if you know if you have some problems then you can start to look at those numbers and start to to have those conversations with the maltster who is probably then turning around and having conversations <laughs> with the with the farmer and you know, th those are the types of things that I think are really valuable, and that's how we're going to grow going forward and how we've grown so far. But, I mean, to me, that's that's where the value is. You're not having that conversation with, with somebody, a wireman. I mean, maybe maybe you are if you're really big. but Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those conversations, I think, are sort of, ev I mean, they're everything. You know, it's it's... It's a dynamic process, and if you don't know if someone likes your product or doesn't like your product, and you don't know why, then there's no opportunity to make anything better. And, and to be honest, you know, even with these big maltsters, it's a dynamic product, oh, yeah. right? They, they've found <laughs> ways to kind of uh, circumvent that a little bit by blending years and varietals to try to achieve more consistency. But at the end of the day, their malts are slowly changing over time, too. And, and, you know, they have a few more tools in their arsenal to to make a more consistent product than we do. But they're working with barley and, you know, barley's an agricultural product. And then let's talk about what you guys do. So there, you, you had a cool photo on Instagram. You were holding a roasted oats. So you obviously work with other grains besides barley. Yeah, mostly in very small quantities. Um, even even for us, you know, we can't we can't malt a, a bunch of oats because it you know it ties up our our malting tank. But we're really looking for ways to explore other grains besides barley and what those might those what flavors we can impart in our beer with those grains. Um, so we recently got a small roaster and have been messing around with. Roasting oats and roasting barley. And Zane's being modest. He he actually modified the roaster. It was a chili pepper roaster we bought yeah. off Craigslist. <laughs> so it didn't even it didn't even have like an actual like outside body to it at all. It was it kind of was corrugated, and he welded a couple of layers onto it so that it can you know actually hold heat you inside kind of, just of it. Spin it, and there's like a, a yeah, it's got a little yeah, motor, motor on it. it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not trying to go too old school. Just a little old school, but you know, it's it's uh yeah, it's open flame and can do about you know five seven pounds at a time on it i think <laughs> you literally just put it in you spin it and the chili yeah. gets roasted yeah, yeah. exactly and uh, yeah so there's like a little like three-quarter horsepower motor that direct drive and we welded some sheets on there and so what is it what are some of the grains that are growing in new york that you you are working with or think there's potential to work with uh for malting besides barley's I mean, kind of everything. On the roasting side, we're you know we're roasting oats because we've seen some better color development more quickly than on the barley side. So, you know, we can kind of turn a few batches around in a few hours, and it gives us uh, just a larger source of so you, you know, put color the roasted oats in just to yeah yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, any grain can be malted. It's just about sort of. And those analytics are way more important on the barley side than than on other grains. So, Jeff, you got another beer here too, don't you? Uh, yeah. So this 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 will be uh, what we're pouring tomorrow at Brewer's Choice. So this is a uh, all New York State ingredient beer. It's got uh, some of Ted Holly's New York Craft Malt Excelsior Pills, and then a newer uh, Harvest Year. <coughs> Excuse me, 
um, of that sort of Whipple mystery hop. So this is the cool. Whipple CTZ from probably a year after that. You think over the last five years, like the arc of New York State malt, what's the hardest malt to get down that everyone wants? That's an interesting question. I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, I'd like to see us move towards a big, sexy malt that everyone wants. Yeah, I mean, kind of... uh Kind of the the dream, I guess, for for New York, if we really want differentiation, is to to have a variety that grows well here. That you know, we malt a little higher than a pilsner malt, get a little bit more probably color and flavor development. On the it. agronomics have to be right yep. on it, but kind of something similar to either full pint, which came out of uh, Was- Washington State, right, or or was it Washington or Oregon State? That was a variety that you know is kind of synon- synonymous with the Pacific Northwest now. And uh, Maris Otter in, in the UK is kind of the other variety, right? People sell this malt based on for the name of the grain premium. variety yeah. and for a premium. Um, so I, you will see where it goes. Who knows? That's a little bit of a pipe dream. But I think if uh, if everything really works out well, we'll find a, a variety or two in New York that we can really like stake our claim on in this state. Jeff? Um, last thing about malt. So um, w- when you're... You know, you're a pro brewer. You've got great, great operation, Keg and Lantern. You guys are growing. Um, what, what's the number one malt that you're buying? You know, is it from a certain malt facility? Is it, is it, is it a type of malt? Uh, <clears throat> so we, we buy a lot from mainly two different producers, and um, both of those, unfortunately, are, are from overseas. So we buy a lot of Weirman. Uh We really like their their base malts the the pilsner malts the bohemian pilsner malt and then they have like a extra hell like a premium like extra light that we use in a lot of lagers and then uh you make great lagers thanks and then a a while back we got linked up um with holland malt and we think that they're turning out some really nice stuff and have have really enjoyed the relationship we've built with with that are they based in the netherlands so there are some people stateside who are sort of the people that I interact with, but yeah, the, the malt's coming actually from the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, and, and what, you know, we've never worked with, uh, with malt from, from a foreign maltster. So could you tell us a little bit maybe about what, like how those relationships compare? Oh. It comes with an accent, Max. <laughs> <laughs> so actually the, um, we, we had been ordering Holland malt, uh, pretty consistently. I mean, it's, I'd say we buy, we, at Kegelander, we're a three barrel system in a basement right now. So we're, we're buying like one pallet every, you know, if we're really cranking through beers at a really busy time of year, we're probably ordering one pallet of malt every two weeks. Um, and I'd say we, we, once we took on the Holland malt and we used it in a few different styles of beers and, and really started to get our arms around it and realized that we enjoyed it, I'd say that we're ordering two pallets of that to every pallet of Weirman. And we're sort of going to the wireman mainly as a source of specialty malts so we'll get all the specialty malts we need and then we'll just fill out the rest of the palette with their with their base malt um and so with wireman it's going through bsg so it's you know i have like an internet relationship with with <laughs> bsg is just a you know back and forth about about orders and whatnot um and i thought that's what we were doing with holland and then all of a sudden one day the the guy 
um, who's originally from the Netherlands, who's, who's stateside now, uh, who basically made this whole thing happen, just walked into our basement one day unannounced and I didn't even realize who he was as we started to talk. And over the course of the conversation, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, this guy is actually, like, sort of he the He just smelled guy. that you were brewing, right? He knew. <laughs> he, 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 knew, he knew that we had been ordering for a while, and he just kind of came by to, to say hi. And I, just, I, was, I was pretty impressed by that. But you're never, you're never going to touch the, you know, relationships you can form with, with local Yeah, bolsters. that's still awesome that you're getting that, though. Yes. Yeah. Change it to the smell of malt. What's it like being in a malt house... I mean, I, lo- I love the smell when, when, when a brewer's brewing, you can smell that malt. But wh- what about when, when you're it's when pretty you're great. It's pretty great. I, what is the smell? What Ger- smell? Germination, it's like uh, You get a cucumbers. little bit of cucumber. Yeah, a lot of, lot of fresh, sort of grassy sort of smells. If you start getting that sort of lactic sourness, that's, that's a bad sign. Uh, <laughs> you want that fresh cucumber smell. Yeah. But as it starts kilning, you know, think about walking into a bakery. You just get all these fresh, really crackery, interesting grain flavors as it's as it's sort of working yeah i mean when we're when we're killing the vienna you know it's like i I might and if you go in there you know midway through kilning or so it just it's amazing it's yeah you can smell it from outside the building mm -hmm. yeah you get a little bit of almost a little peanut buttery kind of action a lot of cracker a lot of roasty toasty just beautiful. Yeah, a lot of notes that definitely fade with time, you know, after that kilning is, yeah. is done, but are still present in the finished malt to, to some extent. Wow, this is this is great, man. I, I'll tell you, just in five years, Jeff, things have come so far that we actually have uh, well, the second brewery in New York State <laughs> with Mario Matraza that's making malt and brewing with it. Um, I don't know. Anybody want to close it out? Anything? Anything this... I feel like we're getting closer to what we expect from our you know, craft products, artisanal, you know, cheese and, and wine and everything. It sounds like we're going in the right direction with you guys. I think we're getting there. I think it's 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 really exciting for us to see where the industry's come and, and where it it's going. I mean, it, quality is number one, and it's continual quality. And, and like we were talking about before the show, to see big guys using these ingredients finally oh, is, is really affirming, right? I mean... I think Jeff agrees and, and Jason at Strong Rope agrees. Like we're we're all small and we're all gonna stay small for a while. We can't support this supply chain alone. And I, I like when we're talking about these malts that are like making these simple beers, lagers and, and, and pale ales and things. Um, I I wanna joke and say, Man, you guys should all make the, the peanut butter, you know, <laughs> donut malt. <laughs> you know, but there's a lot of crazy things happening in beers, and, and I, I still think beer is a, a beverage, and it's good for you, and it's from the earth. So Yeah, and malt's Great been job. around at least 10,000 <laughs> years, right? Yeah. The pastry yeah. stout thing has only been around you for two or three years. You can put some donuts in your beer, but um, everyone just close it up. Guys, thanks so much again. Everybody, uh, Jeff, thank uh, you, man. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Jeff from Keg and Lantern, I appreciate you having me on. And we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, thank you. Same from... Versus Malting and Brewing. And Max from Subversive. And again, well, you guys, thanks so much for stepping up. It's Brewer's Choice event. Uh, we're not t- twisting anyone's arm, but people that are working with local malts are excited to be here. Even foam brewers are coming down from Vermont. You guys reached out and said, hey, this is what we're doing. We should be there. Indian Ladder also. People are really proud of, of and some of them are growing grains too, which we didn't, we didn't even get to today. Yeah, Indian Ladder is the yeah. only estate brewery in, in New York yeah, State. That's fantastic. a pretty cool achievement. Yeah, I mean, I was there in t- 2016. I remember they, they was their first harvest of, uh, of barley and uh, literally their combine broke. This is a whole other show. Their combine broke <laughs> and they were trying to, they were waiting for the rain 
rain clouds to come. So you know, everything with agriculture is is fraught with uh, risk. So appreciate what you guys do. Great work. And again, I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our producer, Justin Kennedy. Engineer today is Max and uh, assistant producer, Aaliyah Papes. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.